Please turn your attention to Genesis 37. We're looking this morning at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 12, straight through to the end. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 12. I'd like to read it for us this morning, and then we're going to spend some time reflecting on it together. Now Joseph's brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we have found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it. And said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put in sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. For we know that by these two you speak to us and we pray that you would speak a word in season to each one of us in this room. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know from last week, we're studying the life of Joseph together. It's a story of indestructible hope, and we'll be looking at this story this spring and through the summer. 
All of us find meaning and purpose in our lives through narrative and story. I mentioned that last week, and I cited this quote from the Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? I wonder what story or stories you find yourself a part of this morning. We can find ourselves in stories of disappointment. We can find ourselves in stories of frustration or of emptiness or maybe even of despair. There's a lot going on in our lives and in our world that might make us feel this way. But no matter who you are or where you are, I think we all would love to live in a story of indestructible hope, to know deep down that there is a light at the end of the tunnel to know that everything will work out in the end, to know that there is redemption for failure and heartbreak, to know that there is light and beauty at the end of dark valleys. I think that's what indestructible hope is all about. And I think that listening to the story of Joseph will help us live into the story of indestructible hope. Last week, we were introduced to the main characters of this family, Joseph and his brothers and their dad and this broken family. And we learn that despite a family that is broken, there is hope in a God who is at work and in a Savior who redeems. And this morning, I'd like to consider with you in particular hope for broken dreams. Perhaps the most memorable and powerful song from Les Mis is that song that Fantine sings, I Dreamed a Dream. It's not a celebration of fulfilled dreams. It's actually a lament of broken dreams. As you recall, Fantine is a working-class poor girl who's seduced by a wealthy student who gets her pregnant and then abandons her and her daughter, Cosette. Fantine goes to work in a factory and so must ask a corrupt couple to care for her daughter. They begin saying that Cosette is ill, requiring costly care, and they begin extorting money from Fantine. When the factory owner where Fantine works, discovers that she's an unwed mother. She's fired. And Fantine must turn to prostitution to support herself and her daughter. Living on the street, she falls ill. And at this point, this low point in her life, she sings this poignant song of regret and broken dreams. I dreamed a dream in times gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. And she ends her song singing these lines. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and you can sing a version of that song, because I think we have broken career dreams. We dream of, 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 of going certain places, and maybe we've gotten to reality where we realize we're not going to be as successful as we once had dreamed we would be, or go as far as we had dreamed we would go. Some of us struggle with broken romance and marriage dreams, when that dream relationship doesn't work out, or when uh, what we dreamed about, the perfect marriage, starts to go south. We have broken family dreams when we don't have the families that we had once dreamed we would have, or when our kids don't grow up to fulfill the dreams we had for them. In many ways, life doesn't turn out as we had hoped, 
as we had dreamed. And if you feel this way this morning, you can relate to Joseph. Because as a teenager, his dreams were shattered. His God-given dreams were shattered. Not just his own. His God-given dreams were shattered, crushed by his hate-filled brothers. And Joseph is living with broken dreams and a shattered life. And he could sing Fontaine's words, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. This morning, if you are struggling with broken dreams, this message is for you. God's at work even through our broken dreams. And this latter part of Genesis 37 tells us that God is at work even through our broken dreams. For this to be true, I think God must be sovereign. And I think this passage shows us that three, uh, three areas of life where God is sovereign. I'd like to underscore them for you this morning. Three areas where God is sovereign. First, God is sovereign over every circumstance. This passage begins with Jacob sending his son Joseph to Shechem, where his other brothers are grazing their, their sheep. It would have been 50 miles away, perhaps a five-day journey. If Jacob knew how Joseph's brothers felt about him, he never would have sent him. Jacob would regret for the rest of his life sending Joseph uh, to see his brothers. When Joseph arrives in Shechem, they are nowhere to be seen, and so Joseph is wandering and vulnerable. This Hebrew teen in a Canaanite field, kind of like sending your son to wander in Camden at night, all alone. This man finds Joseph wandering and asks him, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they've gone? And this man has happened to overhear a conversation of his brothers. And he says, they've moved on. I heard them say they're going to Dothan. So Joseph heads to Dothan, 13 miles further than where he is. And his brothers see him a long way off. I think his fancy robe was probably the dead giveaway. Brothers see him and they hatch a plot to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they say. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a cistern. Let's say his ferocious animal devoured him and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Joseph is 60 miles away from home. His father's not around to protect him. He's at the mercy of his hate-filled brothers. Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in and says, let's not take his life. Let's just throw him into the cistern, but let's not lay a hand on him. And so when Joseph comes, they strip him of his robe. It's a violent word used for skinning an animal. They strip him of his robe, probably of all his clothes. They're, they throw him naked into this empty cistern that might have been 20 feet deep. And they leave him to starve. And as an expression of their callousness and their hard hearts, they begin to eat a meal while their, their brother is in this cistern starving to death. And in the middle of their meal, they look up and see this ca uh, caravan of Ishmaelites, also called Midianites, coming from Gilead. They're on their way to, they're traders on their way to Egypt. And that's when Judah has an idea. He says, I've got an idea. Let's, let's, not, let's not kill our brother. What will he gain if we kill him? Let's sell him to the traders and at least we can make some money off of him. And so they pull Joseph up and they sell him to traders for 20 shekels of silver. And Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. His dreams are absolutely shattered at this point. He's naked at the bottom of a cistern, and then he's sold as a slave to Egypt. My friends, these are the perplexing times in life when we say, where are you, God? Why are you letting this happen? 
These are the times where you say, I don't believe in God because if there is a God, he would not let things like this happen. God seems completely absent. He's not mentioned once in this chapter. And yet, if you know the larger story, you know that God had a purpose in getting Joseph to Egypt. And then when you see that larger purpose, you begin seeing his hand in all of these coincidences. Jacob happens to send Joseph on an errand to see his brothers. An anonymous, anonymous man happens to meet Joseph wandering in the field. If Joseph had been there 10 minutes later, he not, might not have met this man. This man happens to overhear his brothers say they're going to Dothan. So Joseph goes to Dothan, and Dothan happens to be on a major trade route to Egypt. And right when Joseph is in the cistern, a caravan happens to come along at the perfect time. You see, if one of these things doesn't happen, Joseph doesn't get to Egypt. And then you see God's hidden hand at work. God is sovereign over every circumstance. In complex, profound ways that we can't always trace out in the present moment. Consider this illustration from Brian Gregory, a pastor in Missouri. He says there's one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings uh, called The Night Watch. It hangs in a museum in Amsterdam. The top floor of the museum is built with a long corridor that leads visitors into a room at the end where the night watch hangs, almost as if enthroned by the museum. The painting is enormous. It's 13 feet by 16 feet, and many gather to admire it. Gregory says, imagine walking into the room and standing behind two art lovers having a conversation, one a student and one his much older teacher. After admiring the painting for a while, the teacher asked the student to find Rembrandt in the painting. Student naturally looks in the corners and discovers that there is no signature. Next, he begins looking at the faces because Rembrandt, as you know, was known for painting his own face into his paintings, but to the student's disappointment, he cannot find Rembrandt. He cannot recognize Rembrandt's face in any of the characters in the painting. He continues looking closer at the details of the painting. Perhaps there's some clue, some way that Rembrandt has visibly put himself into the painting. After some time, the exasperated student turns to a teach his teacher and says, I have looked everywhere in this painting, and nowhere do I see him. Continuing to stare admiringly at the painting, the teacher softly says, you look for a signature, but I see the subtlety of the artistic style. You look at their faces, but I see the character of the brushstrokes. And that is why you look at the painting and conclude that the artist is nowhere, and that's why I look at the painting, and I see the artist everywhere. See, God is not mentioned anywhere in Genesis 37, but God is at work everywhere. God's face is not seen, but his hand is at work behind the scenes. See, God's not spoken of here. here. He's not referred to. He's, he's all but absent, but he's managing all the details. Because God is sovereign over every circumstance. Derek Kidner, a commentator on Genesis, suggests that Dothan serves as the setting for two ways that God works. This is interesting. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha and his servant are in Dothan, surrounded by their enemies. And the servant is beside himself with fear. Master, what are we going to do? And Elisha cries out to God. 
And God opens their eyes, and they see the hills full of flaming horses and chariots of God. Here in Genesis 37, Joseph is in a cistern in Dothan. He cries out to God, and nothing happens. See, on the one hand, God intervenes with a miracle. On the other hand, God is hidden and seems to do nothing. And yet God is at work in both situations in different ways. On the one hand, a miraculous intervention. We love that way. But there is another way that God is at work. His hidden providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of Question 11 asks, what are, the God, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is this. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's the doctrinal definition of providence. God's preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Genesis 37 is the narrative picture of that. Genesis 37 teaches us that God's providence is not incompatible with deep suffering, with disappointment, with life in the pit. Just because God is in control doesn't mean we won't suffer or experience the bottom of the pit. And just because we experience the bottom of the pit and suffering and disappointment doesn't mean that God isn't in control. Last fall, when it became clear that most of our staff was going to leave for various reasons, which you, you know, I was in a little bit of a tailspin, and I, I began to, to fear and, and worry. This, that, that was not the fall I dreamed of. And yet Genesis 37 tells me that God is providentially at work. He's sovereign over every circumstance. Perhaps you're in a situation where, where you have broken dreams and you're saying, God, why are you absent? Why aren't you working? And Genesis 37 says he is because he's sovereign over every circumstance. That's the first point. God is sovereign over every circumstance. The second area, God is sovereign over willful sin. See, on the surface of this story, God, Joseph's life is ruined by willful sin. He is on the receiving end of the murderous hatred of his brothers who plan to kill him, who strip off his robe, who throw him into a cistern, who sell him to foreign traders so that Joseph becomes a slave. They, they basically ruin Joseph's life. He's a victim of their willful sin. I mean, look, Joseph does nothing wrong here in this chapter. He's just doing an errand for his dad and his life is absolutely ruined. I mean, he could become a very bitter person. And yet by the end of his life, Joseph would say to his brothers this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Joseph doesn't say, you know, to his brothers, you know, I, I know you didn't really mean it. I know you threw, threw me into sister and sold me off as a slave. I know you didn't really mean that. I know it looked a lot worse than it really was. That's not really you. That, I don't know what that was. That wasn't really you. No, he says that was really you. <laughs> you intended to harm me. You meant it for evil. That was willful sin that you committed against me. But you know what? God was sovereign even over your willful sin, and he worked good through it. Your willful sin intended to harm me, but it didn't. It actually accomplished God's purposes. And, and my friends, this is not an anomaly. The ultimate example of God's sovereignty over willful sin is at the cross. 
Peter's addressing the crowd in Acts 2, and he says, Jesus was handed over you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So did wicked men sin by unjustly crucifying Jesus? Yes. Was the crucifixion of Christ part of God's redemptive plan? Yes. Because God is sovereign over willful sin. And he can accomplish his purposes even through willful sin. This is difficult to comprehend. I mean, God is sovereign over willful sin in a way that he is not sinful himself. I mean, that's the philosophical uh, difficulty here. And yet we have to hold on to both because the Bible teaches both that God cannot sin or he wouldn't be God. If he could sin and if he sinned, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. God cannot sin because he's God. And yet God is sovereign over all things or he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worth praying to if he wasn't sovereign. God is, can't commit sin and yet he's sovereign over all. And so how you hold this together, that God is sovereign even over willful sin, is ultimately a mystery. And yet Genesis 37 shows us this, that God is sovereign over willful sin. The brother's willful sin does not ruin Joseph's life. It, in fact, accomplishes God's purpose. And you say, I need some help here. I, I, how do you hold that together? How do you hold together the acts of sinful men and God's sovereignty? And perhaps this might help some. It's not a perfect analogy, but the theologian John Frame suggests the analogy of an author and characters in a story. See, on the one hand, an author has complete control over the characters in his story. But on the other hand, the characters take on a life of their own, such that in a well-written story, there are two causes of every event. On the one hand, the author's purpose and control. On the other hand, the character's decisions and actions. So, for example, in Shakespeare's play, Macbeth kills King Duncan. Why does that happen? On the one hand, Duncan's death can be explained entirely by Macbeth's decision and action in the context of the play. But on the other hand, Shakespeare is the ultimate cause behind everything that happens. Every event in Macbeth, therefore, has two causes, the decisions and actions of the characters and the ultimate purpose and control of Shakespeare. And so in the same way that Shakespeare is sovereign over the willful actions of Macbeth, though the actions are attributable to Macbeth himself, God is sovereign over the willful actions of people that are attributable to them. This means that if God is in control of your life, then when you are the victim of willful sin like Joseph, your life is not ruined. Genesis 37 says, your life is not ruined. Your dreams may be shattered, but that's not the end of the story because God is sovereign. Willful sin does not ruin our lives, but actually accomplishes God's purpose. It's the promise, my friends, of Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things, and all things include the sinful acts against us. God is sovereign over every circumstance. He's sovereign over willful sin. And then third and last, God is sovereign in salvation. After Joseph's brothers 
sell him off into slavery. They cover it up and they cruelly deceive their own father, Jacob. They take his robe, they slaughter a goat, they dip it in blood, and they show it to the father. We found this. Examine it to see if it is your son's. And there is some irony in this cover-up because Jacob before deceived his own father with a goat and a robe. And so there is some divine discipline at work here. God's at work in Jacob's heart, addressing his penchant for deception. When Jacob sees the bloody robe, he concludes what every parent in that culture would, my son is dead. He's been torn to pieces by a wild animal. And Jacob begins mourning Joseph. Verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes. He put on a sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. Jacob mourned outwardly. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and he mourned inwardly. He refused to be comforted for the rest of his days. See, Joseph's dreams are shattered here, but also Jacob's dreams are shattered here. But it's not the end of the story. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. In God's sovereignty, he saves Joseph. And tracing this through, first through Reuben, who protects Joseph's life, then through Judah, who, who suggests selling him off instead of killing him, and then through the Midianites, who buy Joseph, and then sell him to Potiphar in Pharaoh's house. And so here's the narrative arc emerging of Joseph's life. Joseph, the beloved son, goes down to a pit in utter humiliation and then is lifted up to Pharaoh's house where he'll become a prince at Pharaoh's right hand from which position he'll save God's people. And I wonder if that narrative sounds familiar. And it should because Joseph points to a greater savior, Jesus Christ, who is a true beloved son, who goes down to a pit in utter humiliation, crucified on a cross. And yet God lifts him up to his right hand, from which position he intercedes for God's people and saves them. Just as Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him, so Jesus' brothers conspired to kill him. Just as Joseph's brothers sell him for 20 pieces of silver, so Judas sells Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph is stripped naked, thrown into a pit where he cries out for mercy, the cry of dereliction, and no one responds. So Jesus was stripped naked, put up on a cross where he cried out for mercy, the cry of dereliction, and no one responded. See, why didn't God answer? Because he was sovereignly working out the salvation for his people through the suffering of Joseph and through the suffering of Jesus. God used the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers for the salvation of his people from physical death. And God used the evil deeds of Jesus' brothers for the salvation of his people from eternal death. Steve Saint, his dad, Nate Saint, was one of the five missionaries who were killed in 1956 in the jungles of Ecuador. 
As they tried to bring the gospel to the Waodani Indians, a violent tribe known for killing even their own members. To communicate their friendship, these five missionaries presented the Indians with gifts for weeks and then, then prepared for a face-to-face -face meeting. And after an initial friendly meeting with three of the tribe, they thought it would be a friendly meeting with the whole tribe. But when the whole tribe arrived on the beach where they were waiting, they speared the missionaries, hacking them to death and leaving their bodies in the river. Steve Saint was five years old when his mom broke the news to him that his dad had been killed. He says, this man was my hero. He was the man I wanted to grow up to be. He promised to teach me how to fly. The man in whom his dreams and aspirations were centered was dead. Steve Saint's dreams were shattered that day and his heart was crushed. But in the subsequent years, Steve learned of the impact of the death of his dad and the other four missionaries. A change came over the Waodani tribe after they invited one of the sisters, Rachel Saint, and one of the widows, Elizabeth Elliot, into the tribe to teach them about God. Many became Christians, including Minkaye, one of the Eden Indians who speared the missionaries to death. Thousands of missionaries named the death of these five missionaries as the very reason they became missionaries in the first place. When Steve Saint considers the blessings that have flowed from his father's death, he says this. If I had to change it, I wouldn't change a thing. I simply look at the man standing beside me, one of my dearest friends in the whole world, and I realize that he wouldn't be here now if my dad hadn't died. We call him Grandfather Minkaye because he has become a dear member of our family. I don't think God merely tolerated my dad's death. I don't think he turned away when it was happening. I think he planned it. It's a very profound thing to say. God planned the death of Steve Saint's dad for his redemptive purposes. But that's what God did for our salvation. He planned the death of his son for our salvation. I would encourage us to look at Joseph in his suffering. To look at Jesus in his suffering. And we'll find comfort if we're in the midst of broken dreams. If our life is falling apart. If we're at the bottom of the pit. God may seem absent. He may seem silent, but that doesn't mean he's not working. You may not see his face, but his hand is at work. God is sovereign in every circumstance, even in willful sin, for our salvation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know where each one of us at is at this morning. You know the broken dreams that we experience. You know the times when life is falling apart, when we're tempted to give up. You know when we cry out to you, you when you seem absent and silent. Thank you for Genesis 37 showing us a different way that you work. Quietly, in hidden ways, behind the scenes. Help us to trust that you are sovereign in every circumstance. Even over willful sin for our salvation. And help us to experience hope in the midst of broken dreams. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.